Okay, so this morning is uh, Sunday. It is December 9th, 2007. Our message this morning is called A Post or a Tree. Post or a Tree. Turn with me to Isaiah 46. That would be you guys, church. Turn to Isaiah 46. Mandy's already there. Yeah, how about that? Isaiah 46, we're going to read something from the ninth verse. Who else is there? Oh, y'all going to have to help me this morning, church. No sleeping while I'm preaching. (laughs) Isaiah 46, verse 9 says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none that is like me. I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what is still to come? I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. The verse that I didn't read before it says, fix this in your mind. God was making a profound point through Isaiah. Isaiah's job was to get people in touch with the divine and the divine in touch with people. The worldly call this kind of a medium. Isaiah was somebody that heard in the councils in the heavens and declared God's Word to the people. The people then, having experienced God's Word, had a responsibility to act on it. And one of the things that God said is, there is no God that is like me. And the distinguishing characteristic that He set forth that says, no God is like this, is I am going to tell you how something is going to occur before it occurs. That's pretty awesome. There was a Christian apologist named Justin the Martyr. Now, I'm sure that's not what his mama named him. Nobody wanted their little kid to grow up and be a martyr. But that's how history records him. He died in A.D. 168. The movie Gladiator has an old man who is a, a wise Roman emperor. His name was Marcus Aurelius. But long before he was glorified in that movie, he was a butcher in real life. He killed more than 50,000 Christians every year in the arena during his reign. One of these Christians was Justin the martyr. And Justin, who called himself a Samaritan, although he wasn't, out of humility's sake, Samaritans were considered lowly. He referred to himself as a Samaritan when in truth he was probably Roman-born. Had been a philosopher. And in his days as a philosopher... He was well-received as somebody who was very wise. And then he encountered the Christ by way of teaching from the apostles. And suddenly what the world esteemed as wisdom seemed like foolishness to him. And what the world called foolishness seemed like wisdom to him. And his whole life began to change. After encountering the Word of God, this man's life began to change. Now, he never stopped wearing his philosopher's robe. He wore his philosopher's... I can't even say the word. He wore the robe to show people that he did have wisdom. And then when they encountered him, he became known as a Christian apologist. They expected from him Greek wisdom. And instead, what they got was the word of Christ. And when they attacked it, the reason he's called an apologist is he gave a formal defense of the faith. He's one of the first Christian writers to have ever put pen to paper, or probably to animal scroll, animal leather, and written lengthy defenses of why Christians believe what they believe. One of the things that touched me, though, is in reading his work, this phrase occurs. To declare a thing shall come to pass long before it is in being and to then bring it to pass, this or nothing is the work of God. When he examined all that was in the Word, he said that this one attribute of God, to declare something that will be before it exists now, and then watch that it comes to pass, if you can't see the work of God in that, then you can't see the work of God in anything. Now what's amazing about that, is I have a book by a man named Herbert Lockyer. 
<laughs> Herbert was kind of an interesting guy. He's born in 1886 in Scotland. He did not begin writing until, in his words, he was more than four score. More than four score. He's over 80 years old when he began to write. And in the introduction to his book, Writing on Prophecy, lived to be 98, by the way, he said he was going to take every prophecy given in the Word and give it a category and explain its historical context so that people could admire what God had done in this area. He said, but when he realized his age and the number of prophecies, he didn't think he had sufficient time. So he has a book that's about 900 pages, and he said, I determined to enumerate only those prophecies which specifically dealt with Jesus. And in 18 years, from 80 to 98, he completed his work, and I'm benefiting from reading it. Men who have investigated God have found that more than one quarter of all prophecy in the Bible, no, it's not the right way to say it, more than one quarter of all of the Bible is prophecy which at the time it was written spoke of something that did not exist, had not occurred, and history, history now says has occurred. Do you get that? 66 books but 25% of their content referred to something when it was penned, it had not occurred. And now we can look back and see that it has occurred. Things like Isaiah mentioning a man named Cyrus by name had not occurred. A couple hundred years before it does occur. And then now history records that it occurred. You understand what I'm saying? Men like Justin the Martyr and many men since have looked at that and said, there's no more amazing thing in all of the world than this. So as I began to study, I thought, you know, let's look at those historical predictions. Let's show the church the ways in which they came to pass. And that excited me. Then I realized if I did that, you would be full of facts, full of figures, able to impress yourselves at parties. But how would it impact your life? And I started to think, Lord... Is this really what you want from me? Really, is this what you want? Because I love it. This is what I would like to do. And it began to speak to me about the changed life and how God announces in advance that we will be something. And the glory of God is that He brings, He declares it in advance. And then He brings it about so that everyone will look and go, surely there is a God. And the miracle is not that He predicts a war and it comes about. The miracles that he predicted, Gabe Mays would be a son of God, and he's becoming a son of God. The miracle is that he said Stephen Richards would live forever. Though he dies, yet will he live, and he will live forever. We're just in the midst of the fulfillment of that prophecy. So this morning I thought we would cover some of that. Turn with me to Matthew 5. Let's look at some of the they wills in the Bible. Do you remember Wednesday? We covered topics mostly relating to a changed life. If any man is in Christ, he is a... Old things have... And all things have become... How about that? I talked to you about Greek tenses of verbs. That when a man has become new, the word means substantially new, qualitatively new. There's something that you can measure about their lives that shows that they are new. That when we said the old has gone, the word in Greek implies that it's gone, died from neglect. When it says all things have become new, that that tense of that verb literally shows that it became new the moment you accepted it, that it is becoming new now, and that it will continue to become new for the rest of your life, that it is a process. I'm aiming my teaching at developing the Christian, learning to mature in our faith. Listen to the things that Jesus himself says they will, speaking of believers. In Matthew 5, we'll be in the third verse. Y'all there? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, 
for they will inherit the earth. We're talking about the kingdom of heaven being given to people. We're talking about those who are mourning being comforted. We're talking about those who are meek inheriting the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Each of these addresses a group of people existent here, now, and predicts what will be in their lives in the future. The future may be five minutes from now, or the future may be a hundred years from now. But the Word of God says when this exists, this will happen. This glorifies God as it begins to happen in our lives. Tell me, have you never been hungry for something righteous, thirsting for something righteous, and been filled? Then what God declared in the past has been made known, and now that it's fulfilled in you, it brings glory to God. It shows Him to be God. So many things in the Bible are said, for they will be, and it's speaking of something that will happen. When we turn to Romans, which I'm asking you to do now, 8, you hear these tenses do strange things. Romans 8, this is a familiar scripture. I read it to you Wednesday night, and I might read it to you every day for some time. Starting in the 12th verse. Therefore, brothers, we have an obligation, but it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. There's a prediction. Anybody ever seen that one come true? Yeah, you see it come true most of the time. There are men and women that have been a part of this church, some recently, some in years past. Their carnal nature is what led them. I don't have to predict what will happen. If nothing changes, what does the Word say will happen? But, if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. There is a choice before all of us, whether life or death, to be led by life, the Spirit of God, or to be led by our own carnal nature, which is death. And the Bible, which declares a thing in advance, tells us what will happen. When you think about God's nature, it's been this way since the very beginning. What is the very first thing that He tells men about their actions? If you eat of this, you will die. Was He a false prophet? No. Despite all man's advancements in the field of medicine and technology, we have a 100% mortality rate. Some weirdos in the 50s began teaching a doctrine called total sanctification. They'd become so holy that they did not sin anymore, and death had no hold on them. The perversion of the truth. Their doctrine was tested by its fruit. They are all dead. Apparently, they did not reach total sanctification. Total sanctification is at the resurrection. Until then, we battle between the carnal and the spiritual. And to deny that battle is to deny a truth. But we have all of the they will be's in the Bible. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be filled. And I'm clinging to the predictions in God's Word that are true and trustworthy. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God are... Because those that are led by the Spirit of God are... Think about that, are. Does that say they will be sons of God? No. It says they are sons of God. Really. Am I a son of God? Well, there are some days you can look and say, eh, Eric's a son of God. There are other days you can say he's a son of... Uh... No, we don't say that. There is something wrong with us. Salt water and fresh water comes out of the same thicket all too often. But the Bible says if you are led by the Spirit, you are a, not you will be, you are a son of God. What was the requirement? Being led by the Spirit. The Bible says sometimes they will be. Other times it says you are. Well, if you are a son of God, why doesn't everybody recognize it? 
Why don't you recognize it when you look in the mirror? We'll look at the 19th verse. I think it's 19. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. The Bible declares a thing in advance so that before it happens, when it happens, everyone will look and glorify God. So the Bible tells you now, here, right now, if you trust God, if you are led by His Spirit, then you are declared right now to be sons of God. But the creation doesn't see that yet. Because when you are revealed as sons of God, and everybody's waiting to see if this prediction's true, then it will bring glory to God, who is like no other God. For our God declares a thing in advance, before it happens, so that when it does happen, everyone can glorify Him. Praise God for this. Praise God we know a God that knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. Do you feel like you fail? God has started a work in you. And He will complete it. All that's required of you is that you trust Him. Today in our worship, prophecy after prophecy had to do with just being real before Him. Just stretching out before Him, allowing Him to heal you. Not being on a slippery slope, sliding backwards. That that's not our walk. Our walk is one that is easy. Living out our design, Steve said. Our walk is one that is light. And over and over and over, I thought of what Jesus said. He said, all things in heaven and earth were given to me. Come to me. All you who are weary, all you who are heavy laden, come to me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And all I could think about was God has declared a thing. We are sons of God. It's not been revealed yet to all of the creation because we are in process. But God has declared it and when He says it, He knew the end from the beginning. It will be. All that is required of us is that we trust Him, that we be led by His Spirit. When you examine this principle, you can see Galatians 3.26, and don't turn there, we'll quote it for you. I know all of you know it, but it will confirm what you already have in mind. It says, through faith in Jesus Christ, we are sons of God. How are we sons of God? It's by trusting in His Word, by being led by His Spirit, then even when you look in the mirror and you see something less than a Son of God, you can say, but God has declared it! And He is never wrong. I trust Jesus. I'm sick of hearing people say, this pastor fell, or that pastor fell. Who hasn't fallen? But we don't fall beyond recovery. You trust Jesus, you are a Son of God. Well, there is another kind, though, whose faith is not backed up by any action of any kind. That is not real trust. That is not real faith. And they are not sons of God. Well, how do I know the difference? The fruit of your life will show you. A man named Spurgeon. <laughs> really interesting guy. A Baptist minister. Born in 1834. Called the Prince of Preachers. I don't know whether the title's justified or not, but it's what history calls it. Preached mostly in London. Spurgeon said, We have likenesses of our boys taken on every birthday so that we see them at a glance from their babyhood to their youth. Suppose such photographic memorials of our own spiritual life had been taken and preserved. Would there be regular advances in these boys or would we still have exhibited a stage in which we are not yet even walking? Have not some grown a while and then suddenly dwarfed? Have not others gone back to childhood? Here is a wide field for reflection. Children of God, this morning, we're going to reflect on those principles. We're going to look at what it takes to stimulate growth. Because growth is demanded of us. Does anybody know who Andrew Murray is? Two of you know who Andrew Murray is? Andrew Murray wrote on holiness regularly. His work is so hard to read 
that is often neglected. And the reason that it is hard to read is because it's piercing. And yet I found something merciful that he wrote, and I thought I would give it to you today. The young Christian is still carnal, says Andrew Murray. Regeneration is a birth. The center and the root of the personality, the spirit, has been renewed and taken possession of by the Spirit of God. But time is needed for its power from that center to extend through all the circumference of its being. In other words, you are saved, and that starts in the very center of you. But time takes place for it to move from the center of your spirit into all of the habits of your life. The kingdom of God is like unto a seed. The life in Christ is growth. And it would be against the laws of nature and grace alike if we expected from a babe in Christ the strength that can only be found in young men or the rich experience of fathers. I loved what Andrew Murray said. He basically says that a seed has been planted in you. I spoke to you about this on Wednesday night as well. Things both old and new put in you so that they would ferment and grow because what God wanted was something fit for the tasting of kings. Andrew Murray says the same thing. He says that the kingdom has been planted in you like a seed and that it takes time, but life in Christ promotes growth and that that seed will grow into every area of your life. Another way to say that is that the kingdom is centrifugal. It starts in Jerusalem and moves to Samaria and then throughout all Judea and then throughout all of the word, world. It starts the same way in us. But the kingdom is about growth. Turn to Mark 4. Wednesday, I read you a psalm. And then I kept you in the New Testament just to show you that I could do it. Today, I do essentially the same thing. In all of my espousing the Old Testament prophets, and all of my encouraging the 39 books of the Tanakh, I don't want you to forget that the icing on the cake is the revealed Word in the New Testament. And I'm trying to promote a love for the whole Word of God, every bit of it. But I want to show you how plainly some concepts have been put forth for us. It's not hard for us. It's not far from us so that we can't say who will ascend into heaven and grab it. It's near us. It's in our mouth. Is that a New Testament quote or an Old Testament quote? It's near us. It's in our mouth. New or old? Charlotte says old. Anybody else? Somebody else says new. There was no wrong answer. It's in Deuteronomy and it's in Ephesians because the two are in perfect agreement. The Word of God is in us. It's near us. It's in our mouth. Are you in Mark 4? In Mark 4, starting in the 26th verse. We'll find out where Andrew Murray got his idea. He also said, he is Jesus here, not Andrew Murray. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. As soon as the grain is ripe, he puts the sickle to it because the harvest has come. What a profound statement. Jesus was a first century Jew. More than that, he taught like a Jewish rabbi. This means if he's walking, his disciples are supposed to walk so close to him that the dust that his feet kicks up to them. This is what Jewish culture teaches us. And so while he's walking around and he has his disciples following him, he sees somebody planting. And he begins to teach them about God from what he sees. This is because everything in the creation, if you look closely, will teach you about God. Everything will. We just have to open our eyes. The knowledge of God covers the earth. But it takes God to show us it for it to be revealed. When we're thinking about the kingdom of God being like a seed. From other parables, what do you know a seed actually is? The Word of God. Can anybody quote Hebrews 4.12? The Word of God is what? Living 
and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. There's a difference between planting a good idea, what you think ought to be done. There's a difference between planting just any Scripture. When the Word of God, meaning God sent forth this Word, the right Scripture at the right time, it is living and active. If the soil is right and you have a live seed, one that is active, what happens? Whether you sleep or whether you're awake, whether you're tending it or not, it grows. The kingdom is like this. When God sends forth His Word and it hits the right soil, the soil that's been prepared in our hearts, whether you sleep or you're awake, it grows. Why do you think this would be encouraged? He's trying to show us that it's not through our carnal efforts that the kingdom grows in us. I've been forbidden not to do the vine thing. Have you ever walked by a garden and seen a vine straining? The other pastoral staff says that they cannot handle me doing that straining face anymore. I want you to understand something. When the Word comes from God and the heart is right, it naturally grows. That's the natural order of things. Something has to be either wrong with the Word, didn't come from God, not living and active, or something wrong with the soil, your heart, if growth is not occurring. Look at Luke. Luke 17. We're going to keep your finger in Mark. By the way, did you know that Mark is the only one that records that parable? The only one. Mark is so close to Matthew and so close to Luke, it's very peculiar that he's the only one that recorded that. Most of the time what we're emphasizing is the need to keep our hearts right, the need to do something, the need to be action-oriented. Most of the time that's what I emphasize. But Jesus told us the parable to show us something. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. If it came from God and your heart is right, growth is naturally what occurs. It doesn't come through your careful building plan. It doesn't come through your carnal efforts. Have you ever thought, well, I will just wake up earlier. I will read the Word more. Only to fall on your face in the third day? I'll pray three hours a day. Thirty minutes into it, you're snoring. The kingdom is not built by our carnal desires. Could God move on you to pray three hours a day? Absolutely. Or to read your Word at a certain time in the morning? Absolutely. But we need not think that our carnal efforts are what builds the kingdom. This is why much of Christianity fasting, and I'm all for fasting when it's from God, much of Christianity's disciplined approach to Christianity brings something where our lips say the right things, but our hearts are far from Him. The kingdom does not come through carnal efforts. Are you in Luke 17? In Luke 17, look at the 20th verse. Having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, Here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you or among you. What does that mean? What on earth does it mean? He's speaking to a group of people who are trying to change Israel through religious reform. And their ideas are good. They want you to read the Word more. They want you to be holy more. But Jesus is correcting them. It will not come through your careful, disciplined life. This is what Nick's prophecy was about. You view men of God as climbing up a stair-step pattern and never having slipped or fallen, always ascending, always great. And you yourselves feel like you're on a slippery slope sliding back as much as you go forward. This is the devil's tool of condemnation. The kingdom does not happen like this. You know when the kingdom is in its element in you, when you are comfortable in your own skin and you know what you were called to do and it's not a burden to you. You're called to love, love. You're called to give, give. You're called to show mercy, show mercy. You're called to walk in holiness. Walk in holiness. These things are not hard when it becomes a struggle and wears us out and pastors get burned out. How many times have you heard that? 
I've been warned more times in ministry that I'm going to get burned out. Friends, you cannot burn me out. You know why? I won't do for you what God has not shown me to do. And if I'm laboring doing what He said to do, then it's His strength that works in me and I cannot be burned out. Show me an example of Paul burned out in the Scripture. Are any of you working as hard as he did? But he said he had learned to let all of his energy, speaking of Christ, work powerfully in him. That means sometimes that my ideas have to fall by the wayside. It means that every good thing that I want to do, whether it's chop wood with my friends on a Saturday or attend some event with a brother I can't always do. The kingdom of God is not difficult. It's easy. It's light. What is difficult is the struggle between what your carnal nature wants to do and what the Spirit of God is leading you to do. You ever slept late on a Saturday afternoon and felt guilty about it? Why? What's wrong with sleeping late on a Saturday afternoon? Well, there's just too much to do. Really, and there, there won't be too much to do the next day? Or the day after that? Do we achieve some measure of holiness if we deprive ourselves of Saturday morning of sleep? Are we suddenly more spiritual, more powerful? Tell me the truth. If I show up at your house at 5 o'clock on a Saturday morning, does that make you more holy or less holy? Yeah, less holy if we wake you up. I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and the radio station there went around to pastor's house at certain times of the year as a prank and woke pastors up early in the morning and then put them on the radio. I thought, oh my God, you better not go to a couple pastor's house. I was never so impressed with the healing place. Their pastor, Dino Rizzo, was woken up at 4 o'clock in the morning. And what he had to say was godly. That let me know that what had been invested in him was real. I can think of a few pastors that may not have passed that test. The kingdom does not come from your carnal building effort. It comes from doing what you were naturally designed to do. Matthew and Cassidy and I were on a beach serving Jesus. Pastors go on vacation? Eh, not really. We were still pastors while we were there. This is not a job that you take a vacation from. And you know everybody we ran into? We ended up pastoring. Cassidy said in just a moment of observation, but you now they probably never come to our church. But I know that has nothing to do with who we are, does it? Building a church is the natural fruit of our lives. Who we are is pastors. It just happens everywhere you go. And she found some comfort in that, and so did I. There does not have to be a purpose towards your godly activity. It's just who you are. It's a product of God's Word dwelling in you. How about that next verse? I guess I'd need to read you out of Mark. This is what the kingdom is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel. Turns me to 1 Corinthians 3. Y'all still with me? You don't get easy messages like this from me very often. I just told you it wasn't hard. Usually I'm telling you what you need to do better, what you need to do more, what you're not doing enough. The truth is, staying in the flow of the Spirit is easy. It's just hard to get in the flow. <laughs> How many of you have felt overwhelmed and burdened in the center of worship? No, it's just the opposite. That's what Jesus walked around in all of the time. All of the time. They said, hey, Jesus, Herod wants to kill you. He said, you tell that fox I'll press on today and tomorrow and on the third day I'll reach my goal. But he wasn't frantic about it. He was doing what God had called him to do and only what God had called him to do. Did you hear that? Only what God had called him to do. If you're burned out, worn out, don't know how you're going to carry on, you're doing something God hadn't called you to do. You're carrying a yoke you were not meant to carry. If you are so laden with stress, that you can't raise your eyes, that you have nothing to give to the people around you. Something's wrong. Jesus never described his yoke like that. 
None of the apostles lived like that. Instead, they could have their limbs torn off with smiles on their faces. Hmm. The devil can't misdirect you or he can't stop you. It seems that he gets us involved in too many things. I tell you, I have one priority on this earth. The church. One priority. But what about your family? They're in the church. Y'all in Corinthians 3? I'm not. I need to get there. Corinthians 3. Fifth verse. What after all is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. When Apollos did what Apollos was called to do, people got born again. When Paul did what Paul was called to do, people got born again. Each were assigned their task. Paul says, I planted the seed and Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. Many times we've worn ourselves out because we've taken the place of God. We are trying to make things grow. We are trying to make people love Jesus. We are fighting and toiling and straining. It's not our job. If the Word came from God, it's already living and active. And if the soil is good soil, it will grow. It is not our job to make people love Jesus. I've carried a bunch on my back through discipleship. I've worked with people, labored for their benefit. And they were godly while I was around. In the moment that I was not around, they were not godly anymore. Is that their fault or mine? Probably both of ours. Maybe I was trying to be Jesus to them. My job was to plant the seed. Their job was to get the soil of their heart right so that it would grow. The kingdom doesn't depend upon our carnal efforts. You say, but it's not carnal. You're trying to help them. (laughs) Did we help them? Or did we just learn to run with weight on our back? Our job is to plainly speak the truth in love and let the chips fall where they may. But I'm praying for them. Good, pray. But don't pray with a furrow on your brow. Do you think God's more moved by your frustration or your peace? Is faith flow more easily in your anger and frustration or in your peace? One of my favorite old men in this world is a guy named Bob Paroli. And the reason that I love him is he was not a theologian. We talked about many things, but his answer to everything that I talked to him about was, this too will pass. I thought, where does that come from? I didn't get that gene. I'm going to worry about it before it gets here. While it's here and after it goes, what do you mean this too will pass? And when he would explain it, he would basically say, I've been through a lot of hurdles, Eric. God's delivered me from all of them. It was impossible to get this man upset. I was pretty volatile. It was easy to get me upset. Not a lot's changed. Taking a while for that kingdom seed to permeate all the way through. But it is permeating. The kingdom of God is like a seed. Let me read this one more time to you and Mark. We'll move on. This is what the kingdom of God is like. A man scatters seed on the ground. Night and day, whether he sleeps or gets up, even if it's Saturday morning, the seed sprouts and grows, though he does not know how. Saints, you do not need to control everything for it to grow. All by itself, the soil produces grain. First the stalk, then the head, then the full kernel in the head. I want you to get this. For growth to occur in the kingdom, there are stages. They are definite. He says, first the stalk, then the kernel, then the head. Sometimes people are worn out with straining because they want to skip the stalk in the kernel and jump straight to the head. Born again in a moment, and I'm a prophet to the nations, baby! Yeah. Oh, wait, nobody told me they'd be suffering. All the prophets died? Really? All of them? You're kidding me. Uh, Is there another job I could vote for? I'm an apostle. I love that guy on the radio. I'm the apostle. Pastor, teacher, evangelist, blah, blah, blah. Spears. Really? What happened to all of those guys in the Bible? He said they made you rich. 
I don't see that in the Word. What I saw was they all got dead for Jesus and yet will live again. As soon as the grain is ripe, He puts the sickle to it. Hmm. I want to read to you about ripe grain here for a moment. A devout Frenchman was right when he said, Beware of religion which substitutes itself for everything that makes monks. Seek a religion which penetrates everything and makes Christians. Chlorophyll is essential to green trees. As it is acted upon by the sun, it purifies the dirty air, absorbing the carbon dioxide that poisons us. Just so the action of the Holy Spirit is essential to the believer to purify his spiritual life. There is a religious spirit out there that will fill your life with deeds and works that God never birthed for you, that were not the tasks that were assigned to you. But one day every man gives an account for his life. I don't imagine chlorophyll finds its job hard. The natural byproduct of being chlorophyll is that you make things green, that you take toxins out of the air. The natural state of a Christian is that we make peace wherever we go, that we spread the joy of the Lord, that our trust in God expresses itself in practical deeds. That's not difficult. That's not hard. And if you're straining and trying to make it hard, something's wrong with your soil, something's wrong with the Word, or it's just not your task. I watched the movie Amistad many years ago, and I was struck by the way these African slaves describe Christians. They called them the unhappy ones. They were in chains, but were happier than those that were carrying Bibles and sucking on persimmons. What's happened to the church's joy? You know what real joy and contentment is? Knowing who you are in Christ and being comfortable doing what you were designed to do. You know what the way to become the most unhappy is? Let the pinky on Jesus' hand wish it was a thumb. Something it was never designed to do. Let an eyeball wish it was an ear. Find your place and be happy in it. Some are worthy of more honor and some less honor. And God will honor them all. God's work. God's work. Turns me to John 19. I need to talk to you. Well, real quick, Ephesians 4. <laughs> Pharaoh asked me every Sunday morning, What are we preaching on, brother? He says, What are we preaching on? Because we believe it's a team effort. He leads you in song. I lead you in the Word. But... Hopefully we're conveying one message. One of the things that I began to dwell on, every Sunday I go through this process, what am I going to speak on? And my mind is void. And then as soon as I begin to set my mind to my design, my task, it's filled with more than I can give you in an hour on a Sunday. So what I'm anxious about and worried that I will have nothing to give you quickly turns into the opposite problem. How do I glean from this mass only that which they need? And the absurdity of this seesaw every Sunday births our message today. There's nothing about the kingdom that is hard. We trust Him. He gives us what we need. He said, but it's hard to give up your life for Jesus. It's hard to be martyred. It's hard to do all the things. Not really. Not if you're called to it. All you have to do is really love Him. Then nothing's hard. He provides the strength that you need. He gives the seed to the sower. There's nothing that He will require of you that He will not empower you to do. The kingdom is not hard. You know when it's hard? When our carnal nature is ruling us, saying, don't be led by the Spirit, don't be led by His Word, do what I tell you to do. When we're constantly struggling between ourselves on the throne or Jesus on the throne, that's when it's hard. It's not hard to walk in His Spirit. Really not. It'll require you to deny self, let it die through neglect. But it's not hard. You in Ephesians 4? In Ephesians 4, starting in the 14th verse, 
then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Him who is our head, that is Christ. From Him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. All of us are in the process of growing up into Him who is our head. Jesus did it perfectly. He's not the stalk. He's not the kernel. He is the mature head. The kingdom of God is perfectly formed in Him. You are in the process from the seed that was planted in your soil into growing into a stalk, into growing into a kernel, and maturing into the head. Everything that's planted is supposed to grow. If it doesn't grow, it decays. We have an obligation not to grow the sinful nature, but to grow our spiritual nature. That which has been planted in us that Andrew Murray said was moving to all of our outer elements. There awaits us a crown if we do this. I want to read you about a crown. So turn with me to John 19. Do y'all have a couple more minutes for me for something that is good? For something that will make you grow? John 19. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. It's interesting. There are two words for a crown in the Bible. One of them is diadema. This is a crown that you inherit. A crown that is bound to you because of your heritage. Like the French kings. If there's a Louis XIV, what were there before that? Thirteen other Louis, right? Like Elizabeth in England. A crown that you're simply born into. That's a diadema. There is another crown mentioned in the Bible, though. I remember it always because of its name. It's a Stefano. Stefano. The Latins call it a Corona. And here you were, thought that was a beer. What the Latins call a Corona and the Greeks call a Stefano is the crown that was not inherited. It was the crown that was given to you for competing well in the game. It was called a victor's crown. They put a crown on Jesus' head and said, Hail, King of the Jews. So you might think it was a diadema, a crown inherited by birth. But they put a victor's crown on him, a Stephanos, because they were mocking him. Look at the victorious King of the Jews. And yet, even in the world's mockery, you can see some truth in it, can't you? He earned that victor's crown, didn't he? Now, it's interesting because we also were working for a crown. Turn with me to 2 Timothy. This was written in my first Bible that I had after becoming a Christian. I've been sharing more things with you about when I first became a Christian on Wednesdays and Sundays, wherever I can. Because some of the men in the church have said, hey, we would benefit from hearing some of those stories. The stone's pretty unpolished now, but you should have seen it 15 years ago. 
in 2 Timothy 2, starting in the first verse. You then, my son, be strong in grace, in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to reliable men who will be qualified to teach others. What was invested in you was meant to be invested in someone else. Endure hardship with us like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. Saints, what does that mean to you? The kingdom affairs are easy and they're light because it's what your king has called you to do and it's what he's provided strength for you to do. Civilian affairs are loathsome, burdensome, because you were not commissioned for civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer. Similarly, if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not receive the Stephanos, victor's crown, unless he competes according to the rules. There are rules. You go from a stalk, and then you grow into a kernel, and from a kernel into a head. There are phases of growth and discipleship. No seed suddenly sprouts fruit. It does not work that way. There is a growing process that must occur in all Christians. If you are not growing, you are already dead. The hard-working farmer should be the first to receive a share of his crops. Reflect on what I'm saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all of this. I believe that if we reflect on what's been deposited in us and the need for us to grow into Christ who is our head, going through all of the stages, not through some carnal effort or some burdensome work, but by being led by God's Spirit in His Word, doing what He has already shown you to do, not inventing some new system, some new schema. Every time I meet a young man and we have a confrontation, and those of you that met me in places like coffee shops know that that's usually how this works. It's usually, hi, how are you? Hey, that's cool. This is neat. Oh, by the way, are you really living for Jesus or are you playing games with God? That's usually how conversations go with me when we meet. Those who the soil of their heart is a good one start to become moved. And they want their life to reflect Jesus. And so the very first thing that we do, what do you think it is? Is it immediately learn to be led by the Spirit? It's reach out with our own arms because it's all we've ever used. And so they say things like, you know a good Bible school I could get into? Bible school, that's great, love it. But why do you want to go? Is it so that you can learn to worship Jesus with a two-year-old hanging on your hip? Is it so that you can hear His voice in a crowded room? Or is it so that someone else will force a schema upon you to push you in discipline to learn something that you would not learn otherwise? And almost always the answer is the latter. They're looking for some carnal system to make them become what God wants them to become. There is no academic setting in the world that will teach you to be led by God's Spirit. Having said that, you hear me saying, You don't get this from me often, so write it down. (laughs) If you can go to Bible school and the Spirit has led you to, go. Bring back all of your textbooks. Give them to me. I'll buy them from you. And education is a beautiful, beautiful thing, and all of you should get it if you can. But it is no substitute for learning to flow in the Spirit of God. And the degree on the wall will not fix the problems that are in your heart. It does not work that way. There are lots of well-educated men that are paving the road to hell. And there are lots of janitors that are teaching people righteousness. I want the crown that is not the birthright. Mm. I'm an American. Of course I'm a Christian. Got my diadema right here. We Americans are the best. I want the one that says he competed according to the rules. He trusted Jesus in all situations. He was mourning and was comforted. He was hungering for righteousness and it was filled. 
He was a peacemaker and he saw God. He was meek. And so he inherited the earth. I want all of those predictions to become true in my life because I trusted him. I've made Paul the pattern for that. You can see what he has to say to his son Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. Are y'all in 2 Timothy 4? What was our sermon called? A post or a tree? If we plant a tree, it begins to grow. We're not in 2 Timothy. You're keeping your finger there. I'm reading you a thought we'll reflect on with our last scripture. If we plant a tree, it begins to grow. If we set a post, it begins to decay. There was an old farmer who in a prayer meeting of his church in describing his Christian experience always said, well, I'm not making much progress, but at least I'm established. One spring when the farmer was setting out some logs in his wagon, his wagon sank in the mud in a soft place in the road and he couldn't get out. As he sat on top of the logs viewing his situation, a neighbor who had never accepted the principle of the old farmer's religious experience, came along and greeted him. Well, Brother Jones, I see that you're not making much progress, but at least you're established. Our Christian experience needs to be one where we are fighting for progress. Wait, Eric, I thought you said it was easy and light. The only thing you will fight with is your own sinful nature. Doing God's work will become easy after that. It is not okay to say, oh, well, I may be just camped inside the door, but I'm saved. Better a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than out Really? Show me that in the Scripture. I've heard all of that same garbage all of my life too. It is not true. Many people have camped in their Christian experience. Camped and decayed. What God requires is a planting that grows the whole life long. And one day you should be able to tell someone younger than yourself these words that come from Paul. Second Timothy, starting in the fourth chapter in the sixth verse. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. If you think he's talking about carnal efforts, listen to how he clarifies it. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What do we fight for? To trust Jesus. What is hard? To trust Jesus in all situations. What is like competing in a race? What are the rules? <coughs> to trust Jesus and grow from a seed into a fully matured head of grain, bowing before the king. It is not hard to do God's work. It's hard to trust Him in every situation. And that's what the Holy Spirit was given to you for, my friends. That's why as many as are led by the Spirit are declared today to be sons of God. Oh, the world may not see it, but one day it will be revealed. You're declared today to be sons of God if you will just be led by the Spirit. And then verse 8 becomes so important. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for a appearing. He said he was being poured out. He was about to die. But he had fought and stayed in the faith. So he got the Stephanos, the victor's crown. Jesus had to die to get his. Paul had to die to get his. And you have to die to your carnal nature to get yours. But if you can just die to your selfish desires, everything Jesus will ever ask you to do will become light and easy. There is no burden in Him at all. Amen? Don't be a post planted in the ground. I'm a Christian. I'm set. You'll decay. Be something that is growing and changing every moment of your life. And I want to encourage you with this last thought. If Herbert Lockyer could set out to write a 900-page book on every prophecy mentioned, mentioning Jesus in the Bible, 
when he was beyond 80 years old and he completed his task and it blesses me today, what can you do with the years that you have left? Stand up, let's pray.